On this week's Bet the Process podcast, we talk about a lot of stuff. We talk about the NBA. We talk about a James Holzauer postmortem. And then we finally finish off with some golf talk. So if you can make it to the end, you get some tidbits from Rufus. We don't have any good fades, but at least you get some tidbits from him. And uh, with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. Welcome to a very special edition of the Bet the Process podcast. Why is it special? It's special because we're not having a guest and it's just Rufus and I. So you guys might not think that's special, but Rufus and I do. We're not so, even in, we're not even interviewing each other this time. No, we're just chatting. We're chatting just, about lots of things. So where are you right now? I am at my place in Boston. Got it. We are we are we are sort of mostly all moved in. I think all all the tor- the tornado of furniture and boxes is basically confined to the den, but yeah, my girlfriend moved in two weeks ago, and we've, you know, the place looks good. I'm pretty happy. Big step. How's cohabitation been so far? Well, she was on nights last week, so there wasn't a lot of overlap. You know, I was sleeping when she was working and, and vice versa, but but it's going well. Nice. How's the baby? I mean, no is he not baby, even a baby uh, anymore? No, I have a new baby coming in July, so, but no new baby, no new baby yet. That's July 2nd, hopefully. Wow. That's, that's coming up. Mm-hmm. It is. I, I met. I, I meant the current baby, who's now how old? Uh, he is two years and three months old. So, Man. I can now really pay attention to this podcast because Kyle Seeger did not come through for me, unfortunately. Okay. They got men on first and second, and they had no outs, and they had the three guys in their lineup that I can actually hit up. They had Eddie and Canarshan, who struck out, and they couldn't get a run across. What do you think expected value? What do you think the odds of scoring at least one run are men on first and second no outs? I don't know. People, all, all they do is strike out and hit homers now. So, you yeah. know, over 50%. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get started. I wanted to talk a little bit about our last podcast and sort of how we jinxed poor James Polzauer. It's kind of funny because, like, I feel like we did jinx him, but the fact that it was – recorded before our podcast means that it was impossible for us to jinx. No, no. Time is all relative. Did you never study physics? Not quantum physics, if that's what you're getting at. I didn't either, so. No, I studied physics. You can't go to MIT and graduate and not study physics. That's a good point. That's just a thing. So what did you think about, I I assume you watched the final episode? I I did, even though I knew what was going to happen. But what did you think about the people tweeting thinking that he had lost intentionally because he made such a small bet and because he was so tired of the media attention and his kid wanted him, his daughter wanted him to lose so he could spend more time with her. Like, well, you know, so, so like, how I, smart is that? I think I give people too much credit in life because when I saw those things, I was like, oh, I wonder if he did do something weird or if there was some weird thing that happened. But he played almost a perfect game. He just got unlucky. He, yeah, like, 
he, he didn't answer a single question incorrectly. He just didn't hit a single daily double. And well, you know, he hit the first daily double was the first clue off the board. Right. So and it was almost like what was so funny about that. It it was like the recipe for like a sports upset, almost like the you know the the unluckiness, the breaks, like you know in in a in a baseball game where all the leverage situations go against you, and there's just some unlucky things happen. That Emma played like uh, she was amazing she played almost a perfect game and she played just right in the leverage situation so it, it was like a I kind of really enjoyed it from the standpoint of like what we had talked to him about on the pod and then seeing how that all transpired because it wasn't like he screwed up right it was just that he basically got beat by sort of a, a almost like the system that he embraced right which was her like she got really back into that game with that true daily double and then she kind of took control of the board and, and and got the other daily double which took it out of his hands and you know he did everything he could but but you know and and the the final jeopardy bet well, it was the right bet i think we both agree yeah. on that it's yeah about- it was the right bet and, and even like the idea that you know if Emma had out game theoried him, you know, she, she would be stupid to do that. Right. In some respects. Well, she also hasn't like seen, she hadn't seen this big winning streak. She heard from Alex Trebek, you know, that, you know, this guy's won 2.4 million going into it. And Alex was like, said, you know, just, just the way he acted, but, but she obviously hadn't seen Jeopardy because it hadn't aired yet. So she didn't know she'd never seen this guy's playing strategy, but I do think, I mean, she, she won because she got the two daily doubles and she risked enough on those. I think it's, and she did well enough on the other questions, but, but I do think, I don't think she played the perfect game, Jeff. I think that she did not wager enough on that second daily double and it almost bit her, but it didn't. She, I forget what she was at. I think James was at. Yeah, well, was she James went, around she went, twenty thousand, and she like she, she only was like six thousand yeah, or seven thousand. And and I and if if I had been watching live, I would have been like, oh, it's gonna bite her. Why did she do that? Well, she um, went. But, she went into she went into prevent defense at that point, right? She was she playing did. not to lose. After she took a great like risk to get up. She but it wasn't a risk. It wasn't a risk to, to you, d- like having a true daily double early on wasn't a risk at all. Because no, I, you don't you, you don't get to keep the money if you don't get first place. Like we, there's we, no we, way she wins if she doesn't risk it. We've we've we discussed agree. this. We, we agree. You know, yeah. So, anyways, and then what was interesting is it, it, it you know the the idea of like playing prevent reminded me of the basketball game last night, which you said you didn't watch, but I'm sure you. Oh, found I watched it. the end. So you know what happened, right? I mean, it was like classic NBA team going into sort of prevent defense or well, you, prevent, is prevent it, offense. Right? Is that just use the entire shot clock and run in isolation, basically? Yeah, use the entire – don't run an offense, don't be aggressive, and then hope to get a good shot off at the end. And, and you know, Toronto has had this sort of astronomical – their shooting percentage at the end of shot clocks this – this series has been has been enormous, has been great, and it's not it, it's 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 happened for so long in the series that it's almost like people are thinking that maybe this is repeatable or predictable, but it, it doesn't really seem like it is, and th- and that's what ended up happening. Now, what was interesting about this is there was a lot of there's a lot of smart people on Twitter right now that are ver- being very results based in their thinking. People that I wouldn't think that would be results based, like the Durant injury is an interesting one because. You know, he got hurt again, right? And the thought is that, you know, the reason he got hurt was obviously because he was hurt before 
and he should have been playing in the first place. And from that standpoint, you know, a lot of people feel like it was the wrong process. Now, maybe this for was the, the case. Yeah. For, for, but he has all, all season to rest. Well, a blown, a blown Achilles is, is basically going to make him out for a year. So he's going to well, yeah, but... miss the entire season next season. Oh, really? Well, it's a great process for the Warriors because they weren't going to get him anyway. Well, they, they, they might have. Prob- I mean, well, they probably wouldn't. So you think the Warriors, in their analysis, basically thought like, oh, well, we want to win now. We don't care if he gets hurt. Well, I don't think they were. I mean, I, I think Kevin Durant was making the final decision with input from the coaches, from Steve Kerr, from the GM, from the trainer. I, I think Durant ultimately made the decision. I think that if, if he had said, look, I just don't think I'll, I'll be good enough to actually help the team, then I think they, that would have been fine. But I think, I think part of it is that he probably wanted to wanted, – I mean, he, nobody wants to, to sit out and have people sort of second-guess your, your mental fortitude and, and, and your toughness and how much you actually care about the team, right? Right. I mean, well, my point, my point is that, you know, in situations of this type – now, this may, be, this may be an outlier, but when someone gets hurt again when they're playing, you can't say that was a bad decision. Because it may not have had anything to do with the original injury. In this case, it may probably did. And, uh, you know, it's a high likelihood that it did. But generally, the idea of, you know, results-based thinking is that you look at what happened and then you make a decision on whether that decision was good or bad. And that's not how you really can evaluate an individual decision is all I'm saying. I completely agree. And I want to actually revisit the shot clock thing, though, because I think you made a good point. It's something that I had I, I'd seen the stats on Toronto's shooting at, at, on these sort of longer possessions earlier on and how they were shooting like 57% or something like that, like in the last however many seconds of the shot clock. And, and you know, I, I'm not a big basketball better. So, but I mean, one of the things that if I was betting basketball, I mean, I would, you know, if I was coming up with an expected points, you know, value of shots model, one thing I would very strongly suspect is that your odds of making a shot go way down late in the shot clock because you're having to settle for some crappier shots. And there's just not, uh, you know, if one pass doesn't work out perfectly, if you don't magically find that open man, you have a contested shot. And so continually getting quality looks, which they were, they were getting for the most part quality looks at the end of the shot clock. And then, you know, Fred Van Fleet, you know, just chucking up some bunch of three-pointers and making them. I mean, that, that's something that's probably not going to be sustainable over time. Yeah, no, I, I think that's the general point. Yeah, um, I just thought the, it was a great point. The, thank you. <laughs> the, the other thing that was very results-based, and, and one of the people that was, was very big on this on Twitter is our friend Rob Pizzola, who is obviously Canadian, is obviously wants Toronto to win because it'd be the only thing that's ever happened positively for Canada in the history of the world. Wait, wait. And so... Wait, has Rob... Can I... Has Rob ever lost a bet? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't know him. I don't know him at all. I know he has got a good uh, reputation and you guys all like him, but I, I don't know. Yeah. So anyway, so back to Rob. He, so I don't know if you how much you were following the game, but the, when the Toronto went up by six with about um, three minutes left and had all the momentum and they had the ball and they called the timeout. And, you know, when they called the timeout at the time, I actually didn't think it was a bad timeout because I thought they kind of looked like overwhelmed in some respects by the moment. Like they couldn't even believe they were in that situation. They were up by six 
And I thought they were, there was a likelihood that they might do something kind of dumb. I thought call a timeout, run a really good set there. You get a bucket there to go up eight with like 245 left. That's probably the game. But they didn't run anything good out of that timeout. They ended up like, as we said, getting outscored the rest of the game nine to three. But I didn't actually think the process of calling a timeout was a bad idea because, you know, I mean, Kawhi is probably super winded. I know the I know that the Warriors are also, but you know, you have to think that like it again, like you'd rather like calm your troops and like have a plan. And I don't see any reason why that was a bad idea. Um, it ended up being a bad idea, and everyone obviously is getting on Nick Nurse for calling the timeout, but I think that was very results-based thinking again in terms of like whether that was a good idea or not yeah and and if Nick Nurse had not called the timeout and you go down and you have Kawhi a gasped Kawhi not having the legs and and badly missing jump shots on two straight possessions you sort of say well why did they just keep those timeouts in their back pocket um you know they had them there you know, I think it's – you're looking for – you know, they lost. They didn't play well at the end. You sort of look for a reason that they lost and a bad decision, and, and it's easy to point out those decisions after the fact. But, um, you know, I wouldn't think it has, one, you know, anything to do with why they lost either. And, and honestly, I've always thought – you know, it's interesting because when teams go, uh, you know, get down or, you know, if a team goes on a run, the opposing team generally calls a timeout just to sort of to reset. But I've always kind of, in my head, and, and this is just anecdotal, you know, mushy, bad thinking, but it always feels like, oh, you're just, re, you know, when you call a timeout, suddenly things somehow reset and like, okay, you're actually down for 12, like 12 for real now, you know? I'd almost, you know, if I was a coach, so, I mean, I know, you know, there's the whole momentum thing and you want to keep the momentum going, but sometimes you like, I mean, you know, you can kind of reset and be like, okay, the new baseline is we're up 12 points. Yeah, I hear you. That's kind of the know. way I felt too. It's, it's just a different different way of thinking about it. Um, do you have any thoughts on this game six now? I mean, my my thoughts are it's interesting. The line is, is minus three, the total's 211. Um, this is essentially the same situation as um, – you know, not maybe the same situation, but essentially this line is very short compared to games three and games four. Um, and the total is pretty low compared to those games with the, what I mean is with the idea that the, the Warriors are going to be much healthier than they were in games three and game four when Clay sat and Looney was out. Looney is likely going to play. Clay is, I think, close to 100%. He seemed yeah. like close to 100% in game five. So, wait, wait, the line is three. I mean, the Warriors are at home, right? Yes. Wasn't the yes. line like seven and a half when they were at home for game three? No, game three, the line got down as low as, as three um, when, oh, Clay was announced, when Clay okay. was announced out. But then and game four, it was what, seven and a half? No, it was, something. it was. It was high. No, 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 it was, it was five right. and a half and it went down to five. It was not. It was. It was not. You know. And, and um, my point is that this is this line is short. From, Can you tell? I haven't been betting. Of, of from a season long, from like what what the, these teams are. This is based on the recency of what happened in games three and game four, where people remember that they remember them coming in winning two games. Um, I think this total is also low because. 
you know, people the, that second half of the last game was was abysmal in terms of scoring. It um, the game ended up going under, even though um, the first half went way over. So, anyways, um, are you going to hedge your Stanley Cup final bet? Wait, wait. Back to basketball. Do you think it's more likely? So, so the totals have been have been lower, um, or wait, the and that's because Toronto's holding the ball too long, right? In the shot. No, Toronto's Toronto's actually, also getting lucky Toronto's, by making all those shots. No, no, no. Shot. Toronto, Toronto's generally been been pushing the pace when they can. Um, what what the 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 numbers that you're seeing, the late shot clock stuff are in the rare occasions where they do hold it, they, they've been uh, kind of trying to push um, mostly because uh, they believe that they're deeper and the Warriors are thin right now. And, and the first, that's why these games have been going over. They haven't necessarily been going over because of bad defense. All the Warriors haven't been playing great defense. Um, but the Warriors are thin, right? I mean, the Warriors are not much, much less healthy than they were during the season. Well, the Warriors are a, a thin team anyways. Um, and they're they, old. They, their bench is old. Relatively speaking, they're old. Yeah, certainly Sean Livingston and, yeah. and um, Iguodala. The they two. have Andrew Bogut. I, I thought that guy was like 45 years old. Yeah, but Bogut played two minutes in the last game. Yeah. It's not like he's a big piece of this this puzzle. Like the Warriors' problem right now is that they, aside from Kevon Looney, they don't have a big man that, that can stay on the court. Like DeMarcus Cousins is gets played off the court <laughs> because they just attack him on defense and he can't do anything. Um, anyways, okay, so are you going to hedge your Stanley Cup Finals stuff? Um, we, we already did a little bit. I'm not sure how much we, we hedged it out, but there was some value, uh, we thought, on the Blues last game or, or entering game six to win the whole thing, and I think there was some value after maybe game three or something. So, so we, have, um, we have some hedges in place, but I'm excited to be – in Boston, one block away from the arena for Game 7, which is, Jeff, the first Game 7 that the city of Boston has hosted in a finals, uh, either NHL or NBA or the World Series, since the 1980s. So, wow. it, it, should be, it should be exciting. Like, there's one street away from me, they have the fan fest with the reporters and big, you know, television screen and, and lots of drunk people. You know, they've had that basically the entire series. And so I'm guessing it's going to be, you know, even, even bigger. And I actually watched game five with, with a, one of our gambling Twitter friends. Well, actually one of my gambling Twitter friends all day underscore DP um, David, who's a, who's a Boston guy. And it, it was, it was fun. So I'm, I'm guessing tomorrow's going to be uh, kind of crazy. I'm excited to be. Do you have a take on the game at all? I mean, no, I'm just I, watching I, it and enjoying it. I have some Bruins uh, series bet, uh, series bets, so I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I'm probably just going to watch it and hope they win. I mean, do. I know the line opened around minus 170. I think somebody tweeted that out after the Blues game ended. Um, I don't know where it's moved since then, but I'm going to be excited to watch it just as a fan with some rooting interest just because of my futures. Looks like it's down to minus 160. So the yeah. over might be a really interesting thing, right? Because if there's going to be like some serious empty netage these days, like going to empty net early on, I don't know. Yeah. I, we don't know anything about hockey. Let's just move on. Good idea. Uh, 
what's happening on Twitter and in the world of sports betting? Did you want to take talk about this, this you know, definitive expose or whatever on Spanky and sort of the the expose of of William Hill and your feelings on yes. it? I wouldn't call it the expose on twi- on, twi- on Spanky. I almost said Twanky on Spanky. Um, I call it, it, it. It was an origin story. It was Spanky's origin story. Okay, so uh, I thought it was a good read. I, you know, I, I know there's a lot of people that sort of were like, "Why do you have to r- write this feature length piece on on someone who's a steam chaser, copying <laughs> others' play, other people's plays?" Um, but you know, if if you can find an edge, like kudos to you. Right, Spanky's obviously a smart guy, um, and he's monetized it well, and. Um, yeah, I'd say kudos to him for it. And, and, and I like what he's doing in terms of calling out, calling out these legal books in New Jersey. I think if, if he can in some way put pressure on them or put pressure on governments and regulators to sort of, I get, well, I don't know what they're going to do, but, but to, um, force these books to book in a way that's, a little more risk tolerant, that would be good. I don't know how that's going to happen, but um, what I'm hoping is more books will decide to uh, maybe enter the marketplace and realize that there is a underserved niche there. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's an interesting, um, so you, you responded to me about, or, or pinged me with it and, and want to make sure that I've read it. And I had read it and obviously like, you know, it was interesting to hear about where Spanky had come from and like the whole idea that he was like programming and or screen scraping or whatever, whatever he was doing at that time. Um, but what I, what I thought was interesting is, is my take on this has always been very, in terms of like this, this banning thing, it's always, it's always gone to this sort of, in my head, I've always gone to like the card counting thing. And, you know, oh as card God. counters, you're in card count. You talk about card counting every single week at this, these conferences. Of course, you, you know, every, you, no, no, <laughs> of no, course no. your head goes to it. It's all no, you, no. all you ever talk about. That's first of all, I don't <laughs> speak at these. Con- my, my point is that when we, we were banned all the time and there was no one that would care about, you know, us, like I would tell people, they'd be like, well, isn't it illegal? And I'm like, no, it's not illegal. It's, they just can ban you. And my point is that there is this analogy, right, where they don't want to cater to people that know that they that that they know can beat them, right? So the question becomes like, do casinos or like do you think that casinos should cater towards card counters? Like, do you think they should allow card counters to play blackjack? Should should they allow card counters to play blackjack? No, I mean if you're a profit maximizing casino, no. Unless you want so the good, why, unless you want the good publicity of so saying, then, hey, well, so okay, actually, so, wait, wait, wait. So, so I'm guessing you think the argument for four would be the fact that there's so many people that think they can card count and then they get drunk and lose count and they're still losers, right? Probably. No, well, I mean, I think there's definitely an, an, uh, a notion of false positives that they probably do a lot of false positives and probably cost themselves money over the long run. Right. That's not really, that's not really the question here. The question becomes the ethical nature of it, right? Because you are saying that like sports books should allow, you know, people to bet into them that they know they're not going to win against. 
Well, okay, but here's the difference. With card counting, having a card counter play with you in no way helps you at all. You lose money and you don't get any gain any information. Make sure maybe you can like well, learn how to identify that's, other card that's counters. Not, so, that. but you gain no, 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 information on, on, on. from having sharp people bet into you, especially if I mean, and, and it's not like that money is just. It, it's not like suddenly you're just not getting sharp action if you kick out sharps. You're going to get it from you know they'll have beards. They'll find other ways around it. They'll go to they'll. To try to double pop you. They'll do all these different things they, they can do. Um, there's a lot of people out there and a lot of people I'm sure are willing to take money from somebody to go place bets for them. Um, I would think, I mean, I guess there's probably fewer people that are trustworthy, but still, I mean, I think that if, if you, if you take that action, you sort of establish a good rapport with these sharp betters too. And, and they'll alert you. I mean, to, I mean, alert you to errors if you have any they're not they're gonna it's almost like you scratch my back i'll scratch yours in a way and i think it's a relationship that can be beneficial uh for for both sides of the counter okay so maybe but that that's i mean is that the real reason that you think that that people that they should take bets because you think that there's a lot of great information that they can get from them I mean, I, I do think there is a lot of information they can get from them, and I do think that they there are a lot they're kicking out a lot of people that are losing betters. Um, in terms of, but it's it's easy. It is but easy to notion, win without the notion of action, the notion of it being un-American, right? Well, that's, yes, but that's diff, that's different, right? Than saying like you guys are making a bad business decision because ultimately, if you use this information, but and, and we've well, heard from many people who believe that the business of running, you know, a, a square book, the margins are much better. It's much easier. You probably don't have as much operating costs because you don't have to hire as many smart people to deal with it. Right. So Jeff, I, Jeff, I was trying to highlight the differences between blackjack and sports betting though. And I think that's, that is a clear difference from blackjack. Sure. So if we move past like just worrying about the difference between blackjack, I mean like, I guess what my question to you is like, do you think it's like un-American for them or like, uh, you know, unresponsible or sort of like, uh, you know, unethical for them to ban card counters? And it sounds like your answer is no, because they're trying to run a profitable casino. Right. I mean, I, I do think that there is this sort of ethos, this American ethos of, of like, you know, if you work hard, you can make it and, and sort of, the way these books, and it's the way Vegas has always been. I think part of it is precedent, right? If, if I grew up thinking that, um, you know, if I, if I wanted sports betting that I'd be kicked out and, you know, it wasn't really a viable option, that's one thing. I mean, hell, you, you hear about people card counting and you know that it's not something that casinos really like. You know, it's not something that they tolerate. Um, but growing up, I never heard anything about that with sports betting. I, I, I thought that, you know, if you can find an edge in this market, you know, you can make money. And it's sort of, it, it feels like you're being sold a bill of goods when, when they pull the plug, if you're winning better. And, and that's. Uh, who, but who, who's selling you that bill of goods? Like, that's, like who, that's, that's like a load of crap, by the way, that you're saying like, you felt like the wolves pulled out from under you. Well, like, I'm saying people feel that way. Like. Well, but again, like that's, you know, if some really smart kid came up to you 
and said, hey, should I try to become a professional sports better? What would you tell them? Uh, I'll tell them that you wait. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's a lot of reasons. You wouldn't sell them the American dream and then have them eat any, like, I don't know. It, it's interesting. Uh, so, now, so now let's take a step back and say, okay, so you're interested in working in sports betting at some level. Everyone, there's this huge, huge, like, yeah, I mean, you've, you've explored opportunities and things like that. I don't that. have any other skills, Jeff. Well, it's fine. That, I, <laughs> you and I have argued this ad nauseum. I think you do have other skills. You just kind of sell yourself short on this stuff. Anyways, the point is that there's a huge land grab right now in, in sports betting. People believe it's going to become this huge thing in the U.S., et cetera. And, and so – how does this industry get big, right? Like, if, it, is, is it going to get big? Like, can it get, like, which direction helps it get bigger faster? Because turning down, like, ultimately, when people do projections on this business, they look at the handle that they think is going to happen, and then they look at sort of, like, all the revenue that comes from that handle, and that's how they build sort of a financial model on this. So ultimately, like we're thinking about handle, we're also thinking about like what the hold percentage is, et cetera, to, to do our estimates of what the overall market size is. So like how, do, how does this handle grow? Do you think that like things are fundamentally going to have to change for this to grow? Or do you think like the William Hills and the whatnots of the world can continue to run books the way they do and the industry is just going to kind of grow on its own? No, the handle will grow. The, sports betting will be big. I don't, the question is how would it not be big? That's, you know, if you could lay out a scenario where it doesn't become big, I'd be interested in hearing that. Um, I think that you like, look at, look at Europe. I mean, UK, you, you have legal sports betting. They don't take sharp action. People still bet there. I mean, you're making most of your money off, off degenerate gamblers who go into the Ladbrokes and say, uh, I can't sign up for a card because, you know, my wife will find out. Um, well, but do you think that the, but, do you think that it will the the industry will evolve in the U.S.? I mean, we have a um, at, you know the United States. We have a longstanding tradition of doing things a little bit differently in evolving industries. Do you think we will evolve this industry? Yeah, but wait, back to what I was saying though. Also, I mean, look, look, it, you know, there is the, there there's obviously demand for a game that is really bad for players. I mean, look at the lottery lotteries are raking the money and lotteries. I mean, was not supposed to help the education system and it's basically a, a regressive tax, but in terms of project, yeah, I do think that we will see a lot of, um, of evolution. I, I do think that you'll see more exotic bets and all that and, and people coming up like trying new things and some will work and some won't. And the ones that work will probably become big, but I think projecting what the handle is going to be like or anything is, is kind of a fool's errand. It's like projecting oil prices in 20 years, just because, you don't really have the feedback. You don't, we're projecting a market that nobody really knows the size of. And now, I mean, I think the projections are going to be largely based off of what's happened in New Jersey and other States and New Jersey being New Jersey being the model, of course, because they've had mobile betting, they have a pretty competitive marketplace and you're getting a lot of handle there. And it's probably going to surpass Nevada this year, but other States are lagging behind. Um, and I'm guessing that states are going to try to model themselves after the more successful states. At least that's the hope that the New Jersey model is something that becomes a lot more successful than the, the Delaware and Rhode Island model. And, and yet a lot of these states still are going for this sort of lottery based model, um, the, which like Washington DC, for example, which 
you know, but, but at some point they're going to realize that they're lagging behind. They're, they're, they're clearly not getting the revenue, the tax revenue that they should be getting that these other States around them are getting. And they'll probably shift course. Right. At least that's how I feel. Yeah. We'll see. Um, do you, th- what do you think? Do you think that we will see this marketplace like be turned on its head in some way? Do you think in 2025 we'll still have the sort of gray market? Um, we'll still have paper heads thriving, all that? Well, um, I don't know about 2025. I think 2025 is probably too close for real change to happen. Um, but I do think change will happen. I think we're as a society and as an, as a, as a, we, we push things, um, we innovate and I think we'll innovate. And, uh, you know, if you, if you think about right now in American sports or right now in, in European sports, it's like about 80, 20 or 75, 25 live wagering to, to pregame wagering and U S sports are probably the opposite right now. So, and U.S. sports are even more conducive to in-game wagering than, um, so theoretically, if that does happen in, in the correct way, that will grow the overall industry, um, it, it, an overall handle. So that's an area I think, I think there's lots of different products that can be offered that aren't offered right now. I think there's, you know, there, there's tons of things that, that, ha- that can happen, but they're not going to happen right now with sort of the un- incumbent people taking these things or, or the people that I think that are in there right now. Um, and I think it's going to take like a real push by people in the industry to, um, to get people to think differently um, and, and push differently and incentivize people to, to do things that are slightly different um, than, than sort of what's, what's happening right now. Well, what's, what's, what's interesting to think about though, is you talk about this industry growing and these companies making a ton of money off this, which, literally just means you're taking money out of the pockets of regular people. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things I think that's really interesting about this, right? Because if you think about, you know, the comparison that people make all the time is that this is like the financial markets. Um, and it's not because the no. financial markets are not, you know, they're not zero sum. This is zero sum, meaning someone's got to lose for the other people to win. And it's actually not even zero sum, right? It's negative sum because, people are taking money out of this system. So I do, it do, it is a very, you know, problematic ethical thing to think about if this industry gets very big, there's going to be a lot of people losing a lot of money. Yeah. Right? And, and if you think about it, those, the people losing a lot of the money are, are, are the most valued clients for these books. And, you know, they all pay lip service to problem gambling and everything, but you know, there is an inherent conflict of interest there. I mean, problem gamblers are their lifeblood in a way. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of depressing to think about. It is. It, <laughs> it is it's depressing to think about the fact that like, essentially we're creating another, another regress, regress, what did you call it? Regressive tax? Regressive tax. Regressive tax. Yeah. I mean, I think it's part of the reason you sort of see these books talk about things in the way they do, like providing a user experience and, and talk about the, the value people get from the sweat. I've seen some of these new books talking about these things. Um, you know, in, in trying to make it sound like they're providing some value to people that makes people happier despite the fact that they're losing. It really is sick. <laughs> it makes me, it's just making me so depressed right now. 
<laughs> Sorry, I, I know I'm going off script here. No, I mean it's 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 good. It's real. I mean, we've you and I have never talked about. I mean, we talk a little bit about it, but we don't really talk about this sort of darker side of things. Um. Anyways, on a brighter note, did you uh, did you play any world women's World Cup today? I didn't, but uh, I, I saw it was thirteen nothing. But I, I see your notes here. You asked if I took any minus four and a half or five. Here's the question: When would have been the right time for Thailand to have pulled their goalie? I thought you were going to go go there uh, when you were talking about hockey. Um, no, I wasn't going to go there. Uh, but, I don't – I mean, no, I mean, <laughs> what are you talking about? So People don't really pull the goalie in soccer, do they? I know. It was a joke. Oh, okay. I, I, I do have it experience. It wasn't funny. It wasn't funny. Yeah. My comedic so, timing isn't very we good. We probably should. We should probably edit that. Well, sometimes but, like no, you we really don't. don't. Sometimes I'm just kidding. Sometimes you really don't. That was a joke about editing. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we don't have to talk about the Worms World Cup. Do you want to talk about Wait, this? I think we should talk a little about soccer. I mean, I have. You know, you know, I lived in American Samoa for part of a year, and you know what American Samoa is famous for in the soccer world? Samoans playing soccer. Yeah. But what, what's famous about that? Or what's noteworthy? That they lost once in a World Cup qualifier to the qualifier to Australia, 30 to nothing. Huh. They had never scored a, scored a goal in the country's history. I, I can't really say country because it's a territory, but it still is. A, I don't know how that works. Why, why these territories get their own teams for these events. Um, but, you know, a nation or whatever. Anyway, they never scored a goal. And then they had this U S coach, um, struggling to remember his name, um, who came over and he was there the year I was there. He was like chain smoking at this cafe that I worked at. And, um, Thomas, um, Oh God, Thomas Rongen. He, he'd coached in the MLS. He coached in the MLS. He was this fascinating old dude. He was tasked with like, He'd been, he was a former head coach of the U.S. like men's under-18 team and did something with the national team, and he was sort of, I guess, got exiled to American Samoa to help them score a goal. And there was this documentary about it called Next Goal Wins, and they finally scored a goal. I mean, the way they did it, though, was basically they found some people with Samoan blood and flew them out to Samoa to play on the national team, like people that were like Americans and gone, who played college soccer and stuff like that. But they scored a goal, and... My girlfriend at the time um, actually practiced with the team a lot, but yeah, soccer. Woo. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, what's, uh, what's, what's your take on, do we want to talk about this uh, action network situation? What, what is the action network situation? You were just, you were kind of giving them crap on Twitter about experts being able to edit their records and brian weighed in and said they weren't and it started this whole big thing and darren Ravel was talking about his great picks and it just brought up this whole thing about like the tout industry again and you know i think that we we like brian we know brian we like some of the things that they're trying to do especially with the app but it's like anytime you get into this idea of of monetizing content you have people selling picks and most people that sell picks are not very good. 
Um, I would say that all people that, and they're not going to be able to make you any money. So you're charging people for information that um, it's going to be hard for them to really get any value off of. Yeah. First off, I just retweeted something. I thought it was an interesting thread because it showed that, I mean, that people are using the, if people are using the action network app to sort of track handicappers and sort of say, Hey, this, this guy's actually a good, you know, game picker, uh, a good handicapper. Um, I mean, you can be fooled very easily because people can edit records. I think I put in a total of seven plays this year when I was at the airport one day and, you know, um, and I noticed, so I actually noticed like you can, you can adjust, you know, you can put in a play after the game starts, you can adjust the line. And what Brian said was that, that you can only do that if you're not one of their verified blue checkmark people. I don't know what they're called. Um, celebrity pickers, pros, whatever. Uh, and, and so, um, those people cannot edit their picks afterwards and I guess have to pick it against a widely available number or something like that. But, but, um, but I think, I mean, my point was that I think the action network app from what I've heard is really good at for tracking your own picks and syncing and giving you cool little reports and graphs, but that's something completely different than trying to evaluate whether another human being is a good better or not. And you, you have the same problem with almost any platform. I, like Twitter, you have people that can post picks and, you know, from multiple accounts, I mean, you can do the same thing with action network, I guess. Uh, but with Twitter, you can delete tweets with referencing losing picks. And so it looks like you're a much better picker than you are. I mean, so ultimately, ultimately this is like a very interesting thing because this is this idea that, that nuances matter. Right. And, and do you want to, you understand what I mean by that? Like small differences matter. Like the idea of a small line difference, timing on a line, anything, these little things matter in terms of value. Um, wait, wait, like does number of units count as a nuance, like the difference between one and 136? I mean, that's a little bit more than a nuance, but my point is that like the, the ultimate, the ultimate thing that, that, you know, that, that the Seville people say, which I think is so interesting is just this whole idea of like, like, you know, people call them like nitpicky and people call them like they're going to, they're going to take anyone down about anything. But their biggest premise, and I think this is such an interesting thing, is that that little things matter, right? Like, yes, if you do make a mistake in a story and that mistake is a small mistake, it could be pretty consequential if you don't really understand the industry that it's, that it's a much bigger mistake than, than, than you realize. Do you know what I mean? Like the idea of people creating misinformation on Twitter about sports betting because they don't really understand sports betting. Like, you know, anytime someone talks about a line moving and they're not checking multiple books or they're not even talking about which book they're even talking about or even just data from a sports book, like that idea that, you know, data is not valuable from these sports books because these sports books are not taking like betting are not taking bets from smart people. So. Yeah. I think you make it, you make it, you make a good point there. And it's something I hadn't really considered because for me, it's, I mean, it feels like Seville's always like very black and white and just everything. It doesn't matter. The level of severity is treated the same, but I, I think you do make a good point about the little things mattering. I like to, I also do think that um, the intent of something matters too, at least that's just sort of the way I judge things in general. And so that's, yeah, but we've had questions by the way, on Twitter before from people about what is Seville. So do you want to give a little bit of an explanation real quick, Jeff? 
for people that don't know? Yeah, I mean, Seville is this stands for Contrarianville. Although I would not, I would not be surprised if everything I think about Seville is wrong because they love to like have small little acronyms that are only acronyms that they don't know. Do you know what CSB stands for? Like when they do hashtag CSB? Not off the top of my head. Do you? Yeah. CSB, most people would think it's like cool story, bro. Like you say, like someone says something and you're like, oh, cool story, bro. It actually in their part. Oh, no, it can't see blocked. Can't see blocked. I remember. I learned that. Yes. Exactly. So, and I didn't know that. And they were like all kind of, and then one of the Seville person people DM'd me to let me off the hook and explain to me what it meant, which was very nice of them, so that I wasn't the butt of all of their jokes. I had the uh, same experience. Maybe it was no, the it's, same a, it's a group of people that are, I think, very sharp, know a lot about sports betting, and but tend to have a very negative opinion towards things, and um, somewhat are known as like the negative uh, gambling Twitter people. Now, obviously, lumping them all into that, there's there's a variety of different people on it, and I, I think I find them interesting, fascinating. Um, when they've called me out in the past, typically it's it's either been warranted or it's been a nuance, which which we just talked about. Uh, you want to finish up with some uh, World Cup talk? I mean, sorry, some U.S. Open talk. Yeah, yeah. Are you are you betting the U.S. Open, Jeff? Uh, after I hear what you're betting, sure, maybe. I haven't bet anything yet. I'm in a pool. I'm in some pools uh, where we draft golfers. I took DJ with my first pick. So that's a solid pick. In fact, I'd have to say that's probably the best pick. Yeah, that was, was, it was, I was the number one pick. So I I took, I took DJ. You played the chalk. I played the, well, I mean, or something like that. There's no reason not to play the chalk, right? Yeah. I I, I kind of, I think my, the the top of my power rankings is probably pretty similar to everybody else's in the markets. I mean, I I like maybe not in the exact same order, but I like um, DJ Rory and Kepka. And Cantlay is my top four guys. Why is why is everyone so big on Cantlay right now? Is he in like good form or something? Cantlay is like you know you can make an argument he's the best golfer in the world right now. Really? Are you going to make that argument? Well, according to based purely on my this is not I mean my like scoring numbers with the proper DK and you know. Um, yeah, he has the best scoring average predictively right now. That that's not getting into how he got there, so that doesn't necessarily mean like if I factor in other things in his game, it, that doesn't. It's that's not the case. But um, yeah, he's he's one of the top golfers in the world for sure. Um, okay, so how about? Um, but sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say though the like the U.S. Open is is kind of. You know, for most of the time for me, my golf stuff is very scientific. I have these formulas or these algorithms run themselves and it's, you know, it factors in this course in a certain way, it factors in these players in certain ways. But but the U.S. Open and majors in general are a bit of art as well. Um, I'll, I'll give you some examples, actually. Like one thing I have to figure out is how much do I wait previous rounds at Pebble Beach because Pebble Beach hosts the AT&T National Pebble Beach Pro-Am every year, which is on three different courses, but everybody that makes the cut is playing um, two rounds at Pebble Beach Golf Links. So how do I weight that versus the previous rounds at Pebble Beach during U.S. Opens? Because Pebble Beach hosted the U.S. Open in 2010 and then again in 2000. Now, I think only 
out of the guys in the field, I'm guessing it's like only Ernie, Phil, and Tiger that have that played it in 2000. Probably maybe there's one other guy, old guy missing. Like maybe Mike Weir did. I don't know. But um, but but both in terms of like course history, um, like how much some somebody overperformed, like how well these guys played at the course, but also uh, how the course played, like like the course fit. What what attributes um, led to success there? So I mean that's something though that the problem the problem with like looking into that and, and trying to get a data driven answer is the fact that you don't have that many opportunities. You don't have a, a large sample of courses that have hosted both regular tour events and then the United States Open. And so you have you have Congressional, but Congressional hosted the U.S. Open in 2011, which is the year Rory ran away with it. But that was the year I think they had lift clean in place and the course played really soft and, and really long, and it did not play the way the USGA intended it to. Um, you have Beth Page, sort of, but Beth Page, you know, you had regular tour events after the Open. Um, you can look at, like, British Opens. You have a few more. You have St. Andrews with that. And then PGA Championship, you have a few more. Uh, you have, like, Quail Hollow, um, Bella Reeve. You have Beth Page also. Um, maybe, there's probably another one or two, but that's all off the top of my head. But but so, basically, you have a huge challenge there to try to, like, be, I mean, to not overfit, right? Because basically anything I show saying, okay, I should wait course history at, you know, for regular events, X percentage of course history um, at that same course in a major, like the, 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 the margin of error, or sorry, the, um, the confidence interval there is going to just be very, very um, broad. So I'm not really going to be like, so a lot of it is just sort of coming up with a, a thought process, a logical thought process of why I should do it this way. And then just sort of sticking to it um, and saying, okay, this is how regular courses work and all that. And so, um, and then also honestly, just coming up, like trying a few different ways and sort of running Sims with a bunch under a bunch of different assumptions and then sort of like model averaging. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you're, 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 you really are dealing with incomplete information. And I think the challenge of overfitting is, is something that, that is, I mean, it, it's, it's a big thing in these majors. I mean, cause just because, you know, something's played a certain way, it doesn't mean it'll continue to both in terms of majors and, and U S opens and any sort of out of sample testing you do for majors or like U S opens, isn't going to tell you that much. I mean, because the sample is so limited in a way it's like the Super Bowl, And we had these conversations uh, last February and January about the, you know, the Super Bowl and like the first half unders and things like that. And like, you know, you have a sample of like 20 years of data, but it's, it's sort of the same thing with the U S open and, and except the U S open, you have courses that are, you have different courses every year and, and you're trying to speculate on, you know, the way the, the USGA is laying out the course and like how penal the rough will be. And so there, I think you can kind of, you can, you can overthink this a lot too and try to like overfit to, to something like, you know, people tell me, Oh, well, like how are you factoring in the fact that all this rain they're getting in the last few days? Are you factoring in these pictures you've seen of how tall the rough is? And I'm like, I don't have in my data set how much, how many days of, in the previous two weeks it had rained before these other majors. So it, it's going to be very hard for me to quantitatively put that in. But, um, so I think the, the 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 biggest danger is overfitting to these narratives. I think. 
Okay, so who do you who who do you like then in this? Like, what is what what have you come up with as the, sort of the guys that you like and and don't like? So basically, I don't have really any real positions on on matchups on any of the big name guys. I have a lot of stuff um, on sort some of the lesser guys. It seems like, but but I'm I I can't remember a major. I was you know I have less of a position on any one guy at least in terms of matchups. I do have um, – I, I, I am racking up some solid positions on guys in, like, top 20, top 10, top 5 stuff. I, I think the, the guy that I really want to win is named uh, – I don't know if you know if I'm going to pronounce it right – Colin Morikawa. You heard of him? No. He is – he's played in five professional events. He was the world's number one ranked amateur. He turned pro recently. He finished tied for 14th at the Canadian Open last week. I think he has like a top three on the web.com tour um, at one point. He's um, just dominated in the amateur world. Um, he's, yeah, and he's played very well as a pro, and I think he's way underpriced. I mean, I still, to, I have him at a 40, 48% chance of making the cut, though. But when you can get like somebody like that at like 80 to 1 to be like in the you know, top 10 or top 20, or I don't know what. What did, what did I get exactly? Um, you know, I have some I have some quite nice bets there. Um, so I like him. I like, you know, some long shots I like. I like Bubba outright. At, like I got him at 141 to 1. That's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't think he's the kind of guy that's going to play well there necessarily because he's a, he's a guy that's better off the tee or he's long off the tee. And, and as Phil Mickelson said – um, you know, Pebble Beach is great for his game because uh, you you know you don't have to hit a lot of drivers, so it mitigates his biggest weakness, which is driving accuracy. But then Phil also is carrying two drivers in his bag this week, so what, you're, supposed uh, to, you're supposed to laugh there, Jeff. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, good, good. good. Um, another guy, Rory Sabatini. He has an awful course history at Pebble Beach, but he's been playing so well recently. You know, he's honestly been um i mean he's made it so somebody says rory um the past few weeks you know they may well have been referring to rory sabatini but i make him like 235 to one i got him at uh at at 250 to one i mean the fade um fades like i'd say the guy that i'm probably lowest on relative to the market just across the board on all these things the top five top 10 top 20 i mean those are one-sided markets in general but like and i have one matchup against him is web or not much sorry is is graham mcdowell um so he's really not that fadeable um but my numbers are a lot worse and he's a guy that he won the uh, the u.s open in 2010 at pebble he beat dustin by a stroke that was the year that dustin had a three-shot lead going in and then shot like a final round 82. But and McDowell's a guy that back in the day, you know, he was he was a monster at US Opens and he's he's kind of taken a a, a leave from playing elite golf for a little while, but he's he's playing a little bit better now. And so I think that, you know, I, I wouldn't at all be surprised if he, you know, ends up in the top twenty or something, but my numbers are banking against it. I'm I'm obviously against Tiger just because that hype train is like you know, I mean, Tiger's just going to be way overpriced. Um, or at least I'm, I should say I'm low on Tiger relative to the market, but a lot of the markets I'm basically referring to are kind of one-sided markets anyway. I mean, 
but just looking at these top five, top 10, top 20 stuff. Um, I don't have anything on or against Fleetwood, interestingly. Why is um, Ram so low? Has Is this not a good course for him? Or? Um, John Rahm, I mean, he has not been playing that well this, this year relative to, um, you know, where he was playing or how he was playing before. And he has not been a particularly good player in majors. Um, he's, in fact, let's see. He has underachieved by – wait. I have to actually open up a different tab. Sorry, Jeff. Oh, where do I have him even ranked? I mean, he's still a top 15 guy, but – oh, yeah. But he um, he's done decently. I mean, he's slightly better than predicted at, at Pebble in the past. And – yeah, but he's underperformed a total of 26 strokes in 36 major rounds. That's not very good. So would and you take would you take a Sabatini over Horschel? Would I take? Um, you know, I actually like Horschel, even though he does not have a good history here. He uh, his game I think fits the course pretty well overall. Yeah, he's underachieved by I have him as 10 strokes worse at, at this course, but. He's played well. I mean, I remember he he put himself in contention. He was in the final group in 2013 at the Open in Marion. But that's basically his only real good major performance. I'm trying to find Sabatini. Hold on. I have these new names coded, so I can't type in Sabatini. I have to put like Sab R O O one or something. All this to find out what you priced the Sabatini Horschel matchup at. <laughs> Seriously. Something a lot of people really care about. Well, the people uh, so, that are still listening to this podcast, I'm sure care. So I have Horschel at about 0. 0.3, 0. 0.27 strokes better than Sabatini per round. Okay. So Horschel better. I mean, there's I, I found some value in a bunch of guys, guys that have been playing well overall and just generally are guys that have good drivers to the golf ball, uh, guys that I think in general have skill sets that have overperformed their scores a little bit, but like, but, but guys who are not really great major players, Lucas Glover is one of those, Gary Woodland, like just, just because you can, I've just found some really big numbers out there on him. You know, what has happened to Bryson DeChambeau? Remember, he was on such a run at the end of last year, and it feels like he's disappeared. You like him. I remember you like him. No, I was a fa- I, I kind of faded him in the math. Or was it- I know, but you liked him early on. PGA. I, I, the okay. thing is, it's all relative to the market. Like, this time last year, I loved Molinari. This time this year, I don't love Molinari. It's just it's about where everybody else is. So, so. What, what, um, who, would be your, who would be the guy that you would – of, you know, like if someone just wanted to put some money down and just have someone fun to root for, who would it be? Like, who do you think is has the sort of like best chance to win and is 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 like has some relative amount of value? Well, I think one interesting – oh. I mean, Cantlay is 18 to 1. So relative to those top golfers, he's – you know, you're getting longer odds for obvious reasons. And I make Cantlay 20 and a half to 1. <laughs> so that may be the one, right? Even though it's not value, relatively speaking, compared to like what you're going to get in this market, he's not a bad guy to take a flyer on. But nobody likes watching him play. He plays so slowly, it's painful to watch. You know, a guy like Woodland, you can get him like close to 100 to 1, I believe. I got him 100 to 1. I make him 71 to 1. Oh, Sergio, I actually 
found I, I make Sergio 87 to one. So I think there might be some value there depending, you know, a lot of books don't have him, but a lot of books do also depending on where they have him priced. Scotty Scheffler is an interesting guy. I have him at 320 to one, but I found a lot of value on him in top fives, top 10, top 20, et cetera. He's a former, was he, no, I think he only got to number eight in the world as an amateur, but he's he's been absolutely killing it on the web.com tour, just destroying. And so he's he's a guy that nobody's ever heard of, but he's a really good golfer. I mean, uh, to, to give you a sense of, you know, I have him basically around the likes of like Brandon Grace and Thomas Peters and, you know, like better than Jonathan Vegas and Luke List, like guys that... Who, who is this again? Sorry. Scotty Scheffler. Scotty Scheffler. Scotty Scheffler. You're going to, I mean, a lot of these New Jersey books, New Jersey books are great with this stuff because they, they carry every single golfer for, for the outrights. And they do things like top five, top 10, top 20, top 30. But that reminds me, um, take, like digressing a little bit, what do you think of, um, I've noticed that some of these books like DraftKings is offering props that are just one-sided. It's like, will this person have a hole in one with only the yes being offered? Like yes plus eight hundred. I mean, you know how I feel about that. Like that's correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's not legal in Las Vegas. That's not legal in Nevada. In Nevada, I believe you have to book two way action. You have to have a complete market. In a way, it's saying um, it's if if they can do that, they could also say, hey, we're going to carry this NFL game, but only allow you to bet on one side if we have too much exposure on this side. Which I guess they kind of do anyway by rejecting bets. Ah ha ha. Yeah. You're funny today. Uh, okay. Anything else on the U.S. Open? I'm trying to think if there's anything else that's interesting. You know, how, the, how are you on Matsuyama? Uh, what do you think about Matsuyama? Um, Matsuyama, I make him 39.9 to 1. Hmm, so but a team of value there. One, one thing I did a lot of this week was looking at these amateur guys and, and trying to put together something to project where they were going to be because it, it matters not only in projecting them but projecting how many guys make the cut, you know, who you know top 30 top 20 all that stuff and the interesting thing is that um i mean you have the you generally have a few rounds for some of these guys like i mean victor hovland you have like eight rounds as a professional like colin morikawa he's not an amateur anymore but you have like i think four or five rounds as a, as a pro but but you have this you have these amateur rounds but the problem is i don't have the data i don't have like um whole, well i don't have scores from any of these amateur rounds and I'm not about to make a model just for pricing something that's real, relatively insignificant. But, but I, I tried to basically look at these like basically world amateur golf ratings to try to fit like log ranking to sort of adjusted scores in previous opens and things like that. And, um, to try to get a sense of like what I'm regressing to for these different players, for example, like, you know, a guy qualified, um, he might, you know, there's a difference I think between a, a guy that finished or that's like the ninth best amateur golfer in the world qualifying and the 472nd, right? Right. Um, so one other thing that I, I think uh, this probably is going to be the juiciest tidbit I've ever given out for golf, but I think, um, and it actually is applicable to every U.S. Open, but only to U.S. Opens. Is, is that people ignore the qualifiers, I think, the qualifying for the U.S. Open. And, and more than half the field had to qualify, meaning they had to play their way in. And those are rounds that matter predictably for these golfers. 
and, and not, not every guy got in the same way. There was, um, who was it? I think that like, um, Cameron Young, an amateur, like I think won his qualifier, ran away with it. Brendan Todd played really, really well, um, ran away with his versus some of these other guys. Like I think Thomas Peters and Jonathan Vegas, like snuck in and their qualifier. Um, but if you think about it, these amateur golfers to have made it to the U S open, they like to, to qualify, they had to have a round overachieving what they, their baseline for most of them. And so that's automatically you're going to say, okay, they're going to be a little bit better. And if, if that round is, if, if those qualifying rounds are not included, you know, they overachieved to get there. And so, you know, we have to, we have to weight that those performances into, into how good these golfers are. So makes sense. I think that's enough for us. I'm sure people have had enough of us. So with that, let's, let's end the process and we'll talk to you guys all in a couple of weeks where hopefully we'll have a, a guest again. Sounds good. The numbers in the simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it.